I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, professor and author Ruth DeFoster debunking conservative myths about gun violence. Isn't that nice? Ruth DeFoster, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I should say welcome back, actually, because you were on an earlier episode last fall. And of course, just before we scheduled this recording, there was a shooting at the Capitol Gazette. And I wanted to have you on because, of course, every time there's another shooting, the myths around the causes and solutions, they start to circulate. And it feels like the worse things are, the louder the rhetoric. So, you know, let's walk through those. But I also want to first talk about briefly the Capitol Gazette shooting. And what I've learned from you and what I've learned from reading your book twice, actually, was that the shooter, his profile was textbook. He was a textbook example of a mass shooter. He hit all of the markers. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that you really begin to notice when you study mass shootings is how uncannily similar the profile is of the type of man who commits a mass shooting. And Jared Ramos, who was the uh, alleged shooter in the Capitol Gazette shooting, he just he ticks all of those boxes. He, you know, had significant psychosocial problems, mental instability, suspected drug use, a long history of violent misogyny, hatred of women, um, a stalking charge, uh, you know, sexual harassment. It's all there that sort of level of rage and sort of entitled toxic masculinity. Um, so I think, you know, for a lot of us, we we look at that case and say, well, that's just not surprising that that fits. That makes sense. OK, so let's walk through some of the myths. It's the idea that more guns will make us safer. Right. And it particularly it would make women safer. It would make schools safer. And I think that this was initially floated by Wayne LaPierre and it began to pick up steam right after Newtown. So why won't more guns make us safer? Yeah, well, so the sort of argument about we, we need more ubiquitous guns in order to combat gun violence, that's really closely tied to that. The only thing that counters a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun argument. And those two go hand in hand. So first, I'll just talk a little bit about the ubiquity of guns and the idea that having more guns in a place makes you safer. And I kind of call this the Wild West argument. So this idea that, well, if we just had guns on both sides, then, you know, it would be a stalemate and everything would be fine. And I think that argument is probably a big part of why handgun permits are on the rise in the United States, even though violent crime has been plummeting for 20 years, 20 plus years since the early 90s, where our rates of violent crime in the United States are at near historic lows in the aggregate. But this year in 2018, 16 million Americans now have a permit to carry a handgun. And if you look at the number just 10 years ago, that's three times, that's triple the number of Americans who had handgun permits in 2008. And in 1999, that number was only 2.7 million. And this is where it gets really interesting. There was a study last year that found that 3 million Americans report carrying a loaded handgun on their person every single day. And this is the American Firearms Survey. It was published in the American Journal of Public Health. And in this study, they asked these people who overwhelmingly trended young, male, white, and lived in southern states. They asked these sort of daily handgun carriers why they chose to carry a loaded weapon every day. And four out of five of the people who carried loaded guns daily said that personal protection was the primary reason that they carried a loaded handgun. So this is that narrative, right? That in order to be safe, you need to have a gun on your person. And this is a really common assertion. It's a common belief. It's one that I hear a lot. This idea, I've even heard this from other moms who have young children, that they need to have a gun in order to protect their family or their children or their home. But the question is, is that true? Do the data support this assertion? 
And the simple answer is no. And in fact, the data paint a drastically different picture. Owning a firearm substantially increases your likelihood of harm rather than reducing it. And we now have decades of research that support this conclusion, but I'll just highlight some of the most interesting. So just recently, Stanford law professor John Donahue published a longitudinal analysis, and he was looking at over 30 years worth of crime data in American states. And he's looking at these states that passed what are called right to carry laws that increased the ubiquity of guns in public life and made it easier and more possible for people to carry guns on their person daily. And what he found is that the passage of these right to carry laws significantly increased violent crime in the states where they were passed. We're talking to the tune of 13 to 15 percent higher rates of violent crime after the passage of these laws. And if you look on a state-by-state basis, American states that have a higher per capita rate of gun ownership also have significantly higher rates of gun homicides. It's 114% higher on average than states that have lower gun ownership rates. And when we're talking about homicides here, we're we're talking about homicides of men, women, and children. But there's there's a caveat here. It's important to note. So two-thirds of all homicide victims in the U.S., they're killed by guns. But an even larger number of gun deaths every year are suicides. So when we're thinking about that big number, we've probably all heard, right, 33,000 Americans every year killed by guns, we can imagine that those are homicides, but actually most of the gun deaths that we experience as a country in the United States are suicides. The majority, almost two-thirds, 63% of firearm-related deaths every year are suicides. We're talking about 21,000 lives a year. And there's a number of meta-analyses at this point, an enormous amount of research that has shown that having a gun in the home significantly increases the odds not just of homicide victimization, not just of someone hurting you with the gun or somebody shooting you, but it significantly increases the odds of firearm suicide. And this, this relationship between having a gun in the home and potential for harm, this is particularly true for women. And I think this is important to know because one of the NRA's most common talking points and one that they've really been working on in recent years with female spokespeople is this argument that having a gun, carrying or owning firearms is touted as a way that women can protect themselves from violent crime. But there is no research to suggest that this is true. And in fact, the opposite tends to be true. Research has found that gun access in a home really significantly increases the likelihood that women in particular will be killed by guns. So 74% of all gun homicides with female victims happen in the home. And that number is only 45% for male victims. So we're talking about a stark difference. So women who are killed with guns, they're mostly being killed in their homes as opposed to men who are not. And a study comparing women in abusive relationships who survived the relationship with those who were killed by their abuser found that 51%, over half of all women who were killed, had a gun in the house. By contrast, only 16% of women who survived lived in homes with guns. So a woman's chance of being killed by her abuser, women who are in abusive relationships, it's five times higher if he has access to a gun in the house. And that's not just true for women who are in abusive relationships. Women in states with higher gun ownership rates, all women, were almost five times more likely to be murdered by a gun than women in states 
with lower gun ownership rates. You know, so this one I find particularly bothersome because the use of women to sell more guns to other women with the messaging that it will keep women safer, you know, protect them from sexual violence, protect them in domestic abuse situations when the exact opposite is true. I mean, it's simply unethical to ignore the data and to widely spread messaging that puts women at greater risk of death, you know, not just harm, but death. And when firearms are used in self-defense, they're used in less than 1% of all incidents, and you're equally likely to hurt yourself or kill yourself with the gun as you are to kill or hurt the perpetrator. Yes, I want to dig into that statistic a little bit more because I was reading about that as well. So two-thirds of homicides are by firearm, right? And I think that was in comparison. It was the same study where they compared countries with similar cultures. And so can you clarify this for me? So it's not that Americans are culturally different in relation to to violence and homicide, but they are different in that we have greater access to guns. Is that what makes America's homicide rates higher than similar countries? I mean, in a word, yes. Yes, because there there are other there are plenty of other industrialized nations that have comparable rates of mental illness, anxiety and depression, Scandinavia, for example. The only factor that that sets the United States apart is widespread gun availability. We have the highest per capita rate of gun ownership of any country in the world. Yeah. So Americans just aren't more violent. We just have greater access to guns. So some of those interactions or altercations rather that might not end in death, end in death because people have access to guns. So you have a road rage incident and somebody has a gun, you know, under the, the seat of their car, you know, that might end in a gun death or domestic violence situation that might not end in a death in another country would end in death for the woman because there are guns in the house. Exactly. And that's not just true on the civilian level. That's true on sort of the state sanctioned level as well. If you look at, you know, police violence and homicides of civilians sort of on on the state level as well. We can talk more about this later, but we can we can look to the examples of other industrialized nations that have taken a different approach with their policing. And you see that when you put ubiquitous guns in the equation, more people die. I mean, it's it's a fairly simple equation. Yeah. Yeah. So that takes care of two myths, right? Like more guns and also the good guy with a gun, which <laughs> I have more to say about good guys with guns. Oh, yeah. Please tell me. <laughs> so let's say myth number yeah. two. Let's get into that. The good guy with a gun. All right. Yeah. So I mean, this is one that I just I'm really passionate about because this this one goes back to the 90s. Um, Wayne LaPierre made it famous recently by sort of resurrecting it from the, the dead and and talking about it again. But this is a really old argument that the idea that the only thing you need to stop, um, you know, a bad guy with a gun is a good civilian, an armed bystander who can step in and save the day. And this is a really common myth. It's a favorite talking point among the NRA. It's a favorite talking point among their surrogates. And it's one that Donald Trump is really fond of as well. And in fact, after the um, there was a shooting massacre in San Bernardino in 2015, uh, Donald Trump, who was at the time he was running for president, he said, and this is a quote, if we had guns in California on the other side, where the bullets went in different directions, you wouldn't have 14 or 15 people dead right now. And there is simply no evidence that this is true. There's lots of evidence that the opposite is true. So, I mean, for starters, we already know that firearm-related crimes rise neatly right alongside gun ownership. It's true on a local level. It's true on the state level. It's true on the national level. Firearm assaults are just shy of seven times more common in the states with the most guns versus those with the least. So all of those good guys with guns 
It's not stemming the tide of firearm-related violence. It's increasing it. And in my research, I've actually looked, I've looked for any examples of a nearby bystander civilian with a gun stopping a shooting. So not just a mass shooting, but like any shooting. And I've only found eight examples in the last 30 years. So that's eight times out of literally tens of thousands of shootings. <laughs> can you play, Can you say that again? How many times in the past 30 years? Eight. Eight times. Okay. Eight total. Yes. Um, and when it comes to mass shootings, keeping in mind that there have been 101 American mass shootings since 1982, and it depends on how you define it, but this is using very, very narrow criteria. An armed civilian has never stopped a mass shooting. It's never happened. Armed, trained police officers have many times, but never an armed civilian, never a so-called good guy with a gun. And when you think about like the context of a mass shooting and what it's like to be in the midst of a mass shooting, this is not surprising, right? I mean, think about the Las Vegas shooting last year, which had happened just before we spoke last time, um, when a, a gunman opened fire from a hotel room in a casino down on a crowd of people who were more than 200 feet away from him. And he managed to shoot and kill dozens of people and shoot hundreds of people in just a few minutes. And when you think about the context of a shooting like that in the dark from a hidden window, what is the likelihood that an armed civilian could fire up and strike the shooter through the window of his room? It's non-existent, right? The odds that an armed bystander might actually be mistaken for the mass shooter, those odds are much higher. And you think about the fact that most people can't hit a target any farther than 25 yards away. And that's under ideal conditions, assuming you can see where the shots are coming from. In the chaos of a mass shooting, armed civilians they do more harm than good, and they've never stopped a mass shooting. The NRA has also frequently repeated a claim that guns are used in self-defense 2.5 million times annually. That number is false. It is demonstrably yeah. false. Are you- <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just wrong. I'm mean, for every one justifiable homicide in the United States involving a gun. That's about. 250 of those a year annually nationwide guns are used in 32 criminal homicides so exponentially more likely to be used to commit crimes than to stop them you know and i and whenever i hear someone repeat that talking point i just try to imagine if they actually thought through that scenario like the las vegas shooting right are they imagining these armies of armed civilians walking around and you know having shootouts i mean it's just absurd or teachers you know in the middle of a lesson you know taking out their guns and i i I can't even like envision this world that they're seeing. Yeah. And I mean, if you're thinking clearly about it, of course, you don't want every teacher to be armed to the teeth, right? Or every civilian in a crowded <laughs> amphitheater or at a concert venue that the, the odds that those guns will be used in a fight, in a domestic disagreement, that they'll be accidentally discharged, that a toddler will get their hands on them are exponentially higher than the odds that those guns will be used to stop a mass shooting or, you know, this bad guy with a gun. And that's what the data have been telling us for decades at this point. So the next myth, gun-free zones, that mass shooters target gun-free zones. I think it was following the the Parkland shooting that Trump tweeted, gun-free zones are proven targets of killers. That was his tweet, actually. And, you know, I want to emphasize the word proven because it's anything but proven, right? So tell us why. So this is another really common talking point on the right. It's one of Donald Trump's favorites, as you noted, and it's one that he really latched onto during his presidential campaign. And this argument dovetails neatly with the previous ones that we talked about, good guys with guns being needed to stop mass shootings. And I mean, it does, if you're not thinking too deeply about it, it does make a a certain intuitive amount of sense, right? This idea that, of course, mass shooters target places, churches, schools, malls, where guns are not allowed, thereby ensuring that no good guys with a gun can fight back. 
But that's not the case. Um, there's research done by a scholar named Louis Clarivas. He's a professor at the University of Massachusetts. And he's done a, a very comprehensive longitudinal analysis that where he's found that in mass shootings since 1966, which is the first year that an arguably modern mass shooting took place, only 12% of these mass shootings took place in gun-free zones. And he defined those as places where civilians are not allowed to carry guns and where there are no armed personnel stationed on the property. A further 4% took place in gun-restricting zones, which he defined as places where civilians can't carry guns, but armed security is routinely present. So like militaries, facilities, certain college campuses. But this leaves us with a vast, overwhelming majority of mass shootings that take place in venues where guns are not limited. And in these mass shootings, the majority of which take place you know, in spaces where there are no limits on what you can carry or what type of weapon you can have on your person, we still find that armed civilians don't stop these mass shootings. And it's because of those logistical challenges, right? That in, when you're in the midst of someone arbitrarily shooting a number of people in a public place, it is just almost impossible for an armed bystander to stop that attack without, you know, police or tactical weaponry and planning. And this is also an argument that's really easy to manipulate based on your ideological bent and your goals. Because, you know, one could argue that most of public life is lived in places where guns are at least discouraged, if not outright banned, right? Schools, workplaces, coffee shops, most of the places when you leave your home and go to some shared public space, most places discourage, you know, openly carrying weapons in those spaces. And it's for good reason, because every shred of available evidence shows that the fewer guns in a home, in a building, in a city, in a state or a country, the lower the rates of firearm crime. Exactly. Exactly. And I was just thinking about that, like most public spaces, even if they don't definitively state it, right, and say this is a gun-free zone, they are generally gun-free. And if you just think about the psychology of what we know about the mass shooters, often they have a very specific target in mind, like this cap Gazette shooting or, you know, Sandy Hook or the Newtown shooting or the Parkland shooting, they have mm-hmm. a very specific target in mind, yes. right? Versus, you know, I'm going to choose this random place because it's a gun-free zone. Right, exactly. I mean, these places are routinely chosen because of some imagined wrong that the shooter has suffered or because, you know, they already have a chip on their shoulder about something and they want to make a point. They're choosing these places the way that a terrorist would choose a symbolic location for a terrorist attack. They're not choosing them because they're gun-free zones. Right. So the thing that I find particularly bothersome about those first three myths is that they serve two purposes. They serve the purpose of perpetuating this culture of gun ownership in America. And they also, the intention is to sell more guns, right? Like if you keep pushing the narrative that we need more guns to solve this problem, then the NRA wins because more guns are sold. Yes. And that dovetails with another talking point that the NRA has been pushing for generations now, which is that imminently at any moment, the U.S. government is coming to take your guns. And that's the impetus behind their messaging after mass shootings, the fact that gun sales spike after a mass shooting because gun owners, you know, well, not all gun owners, but this small percentage who are sensitive to that sort of they're coming to take your guns messaging, want to make sure that they stockpile in case weapons become illegal. Yeah, I didn't really know what to say about that. That's an interesting way to, to view the world.
So on to the next set of myths, the profile of shooters and the causes behind mass shootings. So there was an FBI report, and I don't know what the date of the report was, but I know that Janet Reno was the attorney general because her signature is on the report. So it must have been Clinton's presidency in the 90s. And I think that that was the first link to gun violence and video games. And I'll just read a bit from the report. It says... The student demonstrates an unusual fascination with movies, TV shows, computer games, music videos, or printed material that focus intensively on themes of violence, hatred, control, power, death, and destruction. And it goes on to say, the student spends an inordinate amount of time playing video games with violent themes and seems more interested in the violent images than in the game itself. So I think that was the first link that was made between violent video games and gun violence. So what is the problem with that myth? So yeah, as you noted, this idea that violent video games cause violence and mass shootings, this goes back about 20 years, goes back to the Clinton administration. And specifically, I think we can trace this to Columbine. So this was one of the most prevalent frames that emerged in the wake of Columbine, shunting the blame for the shooting to these sort of cultural forces that allegedly corrupted Harrison Klebold who were the two shooters in the Columbine shooting. So we heard about Marilyn Manson's music. We heard about the influence of goth culture and violent video games. These were three of those most commonly cited factors that allegedly sort of pushed these two shooters to commit a mass shooting. And of course, we now know in the fullness of, of history and hindsight that many of these narratives about Columbine were just untrue. But The subject of of violent video games and their relationship to real world violence, it's tricky because we do have longitudinal research that shows very clearly that exposure to mediated violence does have effects, especially for young boys. So young children and especially boys who are what we'd consider high exposure consumers of violent media from a very young age. So these are boys and young kids who consume an enormous amount of unsupervised media on a daily basis, particularly violent media. They are more likely to commit violent acts as adults. They are more likely to engage in domestic violence. They are more likely to be arrested. But none of this happens in a vacuum, right? So that specific relationship between playing first-person shooter violent video games and actual proclivities for violence, it's mediated by a number of factors. It's not a one-to-one relationship. It's not a direct causal relationship. Some of the mediating factors are gender. This is considerably more relevant for boys than for girls. Mental health is another. So violent video game exposure, consistent, repeated, immersive exposure to violent video games, it's only a statistically significant predictor of rates of violence in people, read men, who already suffer from significant untreated mental illness and psychosocial problems. So it's the in the intersection of those components, not in a vacuum. And when it comes to mass shootings, while I think certainly there's evidence that violent video games are part of this very problematic and deep-seated culture of masculinity that sort of teaches young boys that manhood equals swaggering violence and these very aggressive displays of power, it's not the only piece of the puzzle. It's not the primary cause factor. If video games were the primary cause of mass shootings, rather than just sort of one brick in the wall of our media culture that really glorifies toxic masculinity, you would expect to see other countries where per capita spending on video games is high or higher than the United States, you would expect these countries to experience commensurately higher rates of mass shootings, right? But that's not the case. And in fact, Japan, which massively outspends the United States on video games on a per capita basis annually, Japan has an average of just six annual gun homicides nationwide. Not mass shootings, 
six gun homicides total, six in a country of 127 million people. And that's compared to our roughly 11,000 gun homicides annually. And of course, Japan doesn't have mass shootings. What they do have is incredibly stringent gun regulations. So it's not hard to see which is the factor responsible for the difference. Well, yeah. I mean, so the thing is, is that in America, with access to guns, obviously being the common denominator here, if it weren't for video games, something else would replace that for these people, these people who are already kind of vulnerable and sensitive to to violence anyway. It would be something else. It would be violent movies or violent books. It's it's there and the access to guns just pushes them towards the gun violence. Yes, there will always be a cohort of people who are susceptible to radicalization who exist in this sort of fringe environment. The question is, will they be able to legally or easily purchase deadly weapons? And in the United States, the answer is yes. Yeah. So what's interesting about this, I don't know if you're familiar with that FBI report, but the fact that this link was made in an official FBI report with Janet Reno's signature on it and other people's signature on it gives it an air of legitimacy. And, it, you know, it is a legitimate FBI report, but the link is is flawed, right? It's not nuanced. Yeah. And this this subject has been the topic of a number of congressional hearings as well, investigating the role of violent media. And I do think it's fair to talk about the influence of violent media, um, particularly on young boys. But it's not fair to assert that violent video games are the cause of mass shootings rather than our gun laws. They go hand in hand, but plainly the primary causal factor is weapon availability. Well, the thing about that is that that assertion is intended to distract. It's intended to distract away from the real cause, right? I mean, so I think even today with all of the evidence saying that there is no causal link between video games and gun violence, that people are intentionally kind of pushing that evidence aside to just embrace the idea that would sell more guns, essentially. Yeah, it it feels very reductive. It's not very nuanced. So the next one, mental illness. So I was watching a town hall on CNN with Dana Loesch, between Dana Loesch and Emma Gonzalez, one of the Parkland students. And Emma asked the question, about bump stocks and about, you know, automatic weapons. And in Dana Loesch's response, she just kept talking about mental illness, right? She kind of completely avoided answering the question. And she kept using the words, a very sick person, an insane person, a crazy person. She just kept kind of repeating the idea that this is about mental illness. So can you dispel that myth for us that gun violence is is caused by mental illness? Yeah. So Again, I think there's kind of a tricky sort of chicken and egg question here. And it's a philosophical question that I struggle with in my own research, because you could make the case, and I think it's a reasonable one, that well men, healthy people simply do not become terrorists, right? People who are psychologically healthy don't choose to engage in this just astonishingly deadly, indiscriminate form of violence like a mass shooting. And so somebody choosing to become a mass shooter, to me, definitely points to some sort of extreme mental or emotional instability. And so I think there's a fair argument that mass shooters ipso facto are mentally ill. But we have to be very careful here because the vast, overwhelming majority of people who are mentally ill do not commit violent crimes. They're not statistically more likely to commit crimes. And in fact, it's the inverse. People with mental illnesses are significantly more likely to become victims of violent crime in the aggregate. But the trouble really arises when we, as you said before, when we sort of frame this as an either-or proposition. It's a false dichotomy. That's the, the fallacy associated with this. To assert that mass shootings are caused 
either by untreated mental illness or by gun laws, but not both. And this is a very common talking point among the NRA set. They say it's not the guns, it's the mental illness. Really, again, it's both. It's the intersection of untreated mental illness, this very specific strain of of toxic masculinity and widespread gun availability. So if we look to sort of the the psychological profiles of the type of people who become mass shooters, there's a number of scholars, um, including Grant Dew, who've done longitudinal analyses looking at mass shooters over the last, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. And what they've found is at least 60% of mass shooters had either been diagnosed with a mental disorder or demonstrated signs of really significant mental illness prior to the attack. And this is a percentage that, that is much, much higher than the general population. Unsurprisingly so, Right. But to frame the problem of mass shootings as a mental health problem rather than a gun problem, that's where we run into trouble because other countries have comparable rates of mental illness to the United States. Some Scandinavian countries have even higher rates of mental illness than the United States, but they don't experience anything close to the veritable avalanche of mass shootings that we contend with here. What's the factor that's different? It's our gun laws. So, I mean, if you think about just a few, I mean, pick a random mass shooter in the last 10 years. Cho Sung Wee of Virginia Tech, who had struggled with selective mutism, stalking and harassment, who very plainly was mentally ill. Jared Loeffner in Tucson, who, you know, clearly had had no identifiable political ideology, believed in these insane conspiracy theories, just really was not in touch with reality. Omar Mateen in Orlando, Dylan Roof, Adam Lanza in Newtown. These are men who should not have been able to get their hands on weapons, right? But they did. 75% of mass shooters are able to purchase their weapons legally. And so if we're talking about a group that is this very very small percentage of mentally ill folks who are untreated and who are intending to become violent, anyone with working eyes could have looked at some of these guys and seen they shouldn't have been able to get their hands on a weapon, but they did easily. So it's our gun laws that are broken. And another thing that I want to mention here is that women experience mental illness too, right? In nearly equal numbers to men, but we don't commit mass shootings. There've only been three female mass shooters in the last 30 years out of over a hundred shootings. So part of this could be because women are more likely to be diagnosed with anxiety or depression. Men tend towards substance abuse or antisocial disorders. So another way of thinking about this is that women tend to internalize their illness while men in the aggregate externalize their illness. But you know, like video games, mental illness and access to mental health resources, it's certainly part of the cultural problem that has sort of led us to this point in history, but it is not the primary causal factor. The primary causal factor is our clinically insane gun laws. So let's talk about Columbine, actually. So I think that's where the narrative around bullying started, right? The, you know, the infamous trench coat mafia, they kind of romanticize the idea of the avenged nerd. So why is the myth about bullying being the cause of mass shootings not true? Yeah, this is one that I, I really feel this one very personally and viscerally because my oldest son, um, my oldest son is in middle school and he participated in some of the walkouts at the Parkland shooting. And then after these walkouts started happening, after these students started walking out of their schools and saying, you know, please don't murder us while we're at school, right? They're very peaceful demonstrations. There's this talking point that emerged after Parkland when these children began to walk out of schools to protest gun violence, circulating, you know, all this rhetoric that 
criticize kids for this kind of peaceful demonstration. And the message that I kept seeing is that kids should walk up, not walk out. That was the meme, right? To prevent gun violence by just being nice to everyone. And I think that's not only misguided, but it's actually dangerous. So there's this message that sort of bullying or mistreatment, it's somehow approximate factor. It causes mass shootings. It's not a new argument. And as you said, it goes back to Columbine. So Columbine was this really pivotal cultural moment that permanently cemented a lot of these narratives we have about mass shootings. Like you said, you know, avenging this this sort of nerd or whatever. And the media coverage of Columbine set the agenda for media coverage of other mass shootings for years to come. So, you know, you remember all the hand wringing about violent video games, about music, about clubbed and Harris to shooters who were allegedly pushed to commit this shooting because they were bullied and they just finally had had enough and they're going to show everyone. It's not true. All these stories turned out to be false. The Columbine shooters were not bullied. They themselves were bullies. They weren't picked on. They picked on others. They didn't target jocks or minorities. All of these narratives are wrong. But Columbine was just this hugely influential cultural event. And we internalize all these narratives. And we still see this emerge after every mass shooting, or at least mass shootings that involve white or cultural in-group shooters. We look for outside factors that made them snap. We look for outside explanations because we think of them as being innately reasonable and think, well, something must have made them do it, right? As if choosing to indiscriminately murder dozens of people is just a natural symptom of being bullied or being spurned by women. Of course it's not. These are not normal, healthy young men who just had a bad day, right? The road to mass murder is long, it's well-marked, and it's well-planned. And in every case I've ever studied, every mass shooting I've ever written about, the people around the mass shooter saw it coming. It wasn't a surprise. And so I think that telling children that they should resolve the epidemic of American gun violence by just being nicer and being quiet and staying in their seats I actually find that offensive. I think it's absurd. You know, preventing mass murder is not accomplished by lecturing kids to be nicer. It's not as if they brought their murders upon themselves by being mean to a mass shooter. And of course, you should be kind to others. But this one is just a red herring. Bullying does not cause mass shootings. Right, right. Yeah, you're right. That That's really bothersome too, to put the onus on children and put that burden on children, right? Yeah. Um, so Stephen Paddock and the idea of, of snapping. So Stephen Paddock in Las Vegas, when they interviewed his brother, his brother said he was just a guy. Something happened. He snapped or something. Right. So this idea that shooters just snap. Right. Why is that a myth? Yeah, this is another explanation. It sounds intuitive. And that's partly based on our media diet. You know, as you noted, there's a TV show called Snapped. And we think about, well, I'm just going to... This is something that's deeply ingrained in our cultural environment. But it's wrong. Mass shooters don't snap. They don't make a knee-jerk decision to commit a mass shooting. Mass shootings require a lot of planning. They plan carefully and methodically often months or years in advance. And the men who commit mass shootings, they very predictably and systematically move down a road toward violence. There is a playbook. It is eerily identical in almost every case. They have long histories of domestic violence and mistreatment of women. The Capitol Gazette shooting suspect just a couple days ago, Jared Ramos, we, we now know, had a long history of violent misogyny, harassment of women. This is not surprising. Mass shooters almost all fit this very depressingly predictable profile. They are male. They're isolated. They often have comorbid substance abuse issues that combine with psychosocial problems, gun availability, that's the important one, and cultural scripts to provide this deeply disturbing avenue for establishing what they see as their power that they've been denied and their importance. They feel unheard, right? So it's about 
power and dominance and rage. It's not about being bullied. It's not about snapping. Mass shooters are bullies. They are terrorists, right? They intend to inflict pain and fear and death. And any woman who's ever been stalked by a man that she wasn't interested in, and that's most women, I suspect, knows this personality type. There's this very particular type of entitlement at play here, this entitlement to women's bodies, this entitlement to whatever they want. And when they feel they've been denied what they deserve, they plan to hurt others, especially women. That's what this is about. It's not about snapping. What is it about these shooters that gives people the impression that they were just quiet, you know, nice people when there's often a record of they're not being actually just quiet, nice people, for instance, in cases where they've stalked or harassed women? What is it about this profile that gives people the impression that they were just just quiet citizens? Well, this is really, I mean, this is a function of toxic masculinity and the sort of patriarchal culture that we live in, which is that, you know, men sort of get the benefit of the doubt. And there's a lot of this very invisible, violent misogyny lurking in the wings or just below the surface. And that, I mean, any woman can tell you, I mean, ask, ask any woman, have you ever been followed home? And almost every woman will tell you yes. And I think a lot of men would be surprised by that. But just the ubiquity of this sort of toxic, masculine, violent, misogynistic rhetoric that's everywhere. It's really easy for some of these young men who are already on the cusp, who are already in the fringes, who are sort of susceptible to radicalization to buy into this because it feels like an avenue for them to gain power or to be taken seriously or, or to be respected. And I think women are not surprised by this because we see this every day. But it is surprising often to you know the men who knew some of these mass shooters who look at them and say, well, he was just a quiet guy. He just lived next door because they don't see that undercurrent that we see. They don't see the mistreatment and the harassment. A lot of times because the kind of men who mistreat and harass women, they hide it from other men. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that kind of speaks to one of the factors or one of the the parts of the the profile is that they're kind of isolated. You know, they aren't possibly, you know, the outgoing types. They aren't out socializing and they aren't playing tag football with the guys down the street. They're isolated and they're, you know, behind their computers harassing some woman. (laughs) Yes. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, and that, that profile is the same, whether we're talking about a mass shooter like Jared Ramos or whether we're talking about the kinds of young men who join ISIL. I mean, it's the same personality. It's the same profile. It's, you know, young men who are isolated, who have a lot of an enormous amount of time to sort of radicalize on their own, who are already existing in this sort of fringe, you know, area of the internet or of public life and who already have these these fairly extremist ideas that are being nurtured and and sort of growing in isolation. So so the last myth that we don't need new laws, we just have to enforce the laws that we have. Okay, yeah. That's that's problematic because unfortunately you know, the laws we have are incredibly lax overall. Even cities and states that are held up as having really strict gun laws, they really don't. So for example, one talking point that we often hear is Chicago, right? The NRA, the Trump administration, they love to pivot to Chicago when they're trying to make the case that stricter gun laws don't work. They say, what about Chicago? Chicago has some of the most strict gun laws in the nation, and they still have, of course, a significant problem with gun violence. But Chicago really doesn't have strict gun laws. They used to be somewhat stricter. They used to have a handgun ban, but that was struck down 10 years ago. They used to have a registry program that ended in 2013. Here's what Chicago, what Illinois does mandate, licenses and waiting periods. That's not strict. That's not even a bare minimum. Illinois' gun laws are only strict in any sense of the term in comparison to the states around it, which have some of the most lax gun laws in the nation. And right, Chicago's not 
a walled city, right? You can drive out of the city and come back in if you want. And if you want to bring a gun into the city, you don't have to, and you don't want to abide by a license or a waiting period. Just drive 25 minutes into Indiana and drive back. It's that simple. And on a national level, we have some of the weakest gun laws of any major industrialized nation. And right alongside it, we have rates of gun crimes that average about 20 times that of any other industrialized nation. The biggest issue with our gun laws as they're written today is that as many as 40% of all gun sales involve private sellers. And these gun sales don't require background checks. This is the private sale or the gun show loopholes, what it's called. And there's a recent survey that found that almost half of prison inmates who used guns in their crimes said they'd gotten their guns this way through that private sale loophole. So at a gun show or any other sale that's deemed private, private parties, they're not legally required by federal law to ask for identification, to complete any forms, to keep any sales records, as long as the sale doesn't cross state lines. There's a handful of states that require background checks for private sales, but most don't. And this is a loophole so big, you could drive a tank through it. And even more horrifyingly, 62% of online gun sellers are willing to sell to buyers who state upfront that they cannot pass a background check. And what's really interesting to me here is the huge difference between the sort of NRA and the far right talking points and the beliefs of actual gun owners. 80% of gun owners support closing this loophole. I think it's 69% of gun owners of NRA member gun owners support instituting universal background checks for gun sales. These are common sense regulations that most gun owners support. But NRA leadership and politicians who take NRA money, they don't support closing this loophole. So the fact is, it's just, it's far too easy to legally purchase a gun in the United States. So the, the, the laws we have really are not enough. How have other countries solved this, right? Like, for instance, the loophole of, you know, buying a gun online. How do other countries fare when trying to close those loopholes? So I can't speak specifically to online sales because I am not sure about about that part of the law. But we do know and we have lots and lots of data at this point that other industrialized nations, so countries like Japan, the UK, Australia, that are really comparable to the US in terms of you know, culture, industrialization, wealth. These countries have very successfully implemented gun policy changes that have drastically reduced violent crime. And a lot of this stems back to 1996 when there were two mass shootings in the UK and Australia that prompted massive changes to gun policy in both of those countries. Gun buyback programs, much stricter background checks, new bans on previously legal weapons. Japan, I mentioned Japan as well. Japan has had very, very stringent gun laws since the 1950s. And Japan has some of the lowest rates of gun violence on the planet. It's not surprising. And of course, you know, research following some of these gun buyback programs and changes to gun policy in the UK and Australia found that they were incredibly effective. 20 years of research now following the programs in Australia found an 80% drop in in firearm suicide rates and a 60% drop in gun-related homicides in Australia over a 20-year period. And in the UK, every year since has seen excessive drops in the rates of gun crimes. And Australia has not had a mass shooting since. The UK has had one. And we've had, of course, dozens during that same time period. So we know this works, right? We know that gun laws work. It's a simple equation. But here in the US, we have this very deeply entrenched, powerful gun lobby that that demands you know, acquiescence and obedience from the politicians to whom it donates. And it ensures that no meaningful change to our laws take place. The problem in the U.S. is our now two-decade ban on federal funding of gun research. The CDC is banned outright 
from studying gun violence. So that's the environment that we're in now. Yeah. So the last myth, actually, is that there's nothing we can do about mass shootings. Yeah. And that's perhaps one of the most maddening talking points that the NRA and the really far right push after a mass shooting. And it's something that gun owners know to be false, right? We know that gun owners support these changes to legislation. They're they're reasonable. Um, But it's this kind of infuriating fatalism, right? As if they really have no idea what could possibly be done to stem the tide, right? Thoughts and prayers, you know, stop bullying, walk up, not out, mental illness, video games, like everything but common sense gun reform. And there's no question, there's no question that the most important causal factor that explains the American epidemic of mass shootings is the guns. It's always been the guns. Decades of peer-reviewed research that demonstrate this again and again, right? The U.S. has the highest per capita rate of gun ownership of any country in the world. We're awash in weapons. We have almost one gun for every man, woman, and child in the United States. It's just this dizzying arsenal. So, of course, we are the only country where mass shootings occur with this kind of awful regularity. That is not surprising, What is surprising is that anyone would look at all the years and years of data that we have in hand and still refuse to accept that the problem is plainly legal gun availability. So let's say we get our act together and we vote people into office who aren't afraid of the NRA and they enact, you know, effective gun legislation. What does that look like for us? One thing that I think is really integral to the conversation about sort of what 21st century disarmament might, might look like, and that's such a tricky question because of the influence of the gun lobby and because of the Second Amendment and how that balances with the other amendments, the Fourth and the Fourteenth due, due Process Clause and so forth, is that we, we have to look not just at sort of common sense gun reform among citizens, But I think we also realistically, we have to think about what disarmament might look like for our police forces. And I know that's a that's a sort of a third rail issue that's very controversial. But our police are they're armed to the teeth with military weaponry and they're very quick, you know, to use those weapons. And of course, part of that is that they're patrolling different societies from places like the UK or Australia, where most of the citizenry are are not armed. Here, most of the citizenry are armed, right? So the police are going out into a much more dangerous environment for them. But American police shoot the same number of people in a day that British police do in an average year. So we, we have to think not just about the citizenry, but about the way in which this sort of knee jerk gun culture has really influenced the way that we police our societies as well. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That's that's really problematic. I mean, the fact that 20 years ago or 30 years ago, guns are the solution to, you know, just stopping someone who's running away from a traffic stop, right? An unarmed person, that that's just the go-to solution. Right. And that has happened this month that, I mean, that's happened dozens and dozens of times in the United States where unarmed people running away. And I'm, I'm not unsympathetic to the dangers that police officers face. My next door neighbor is a police officer. I have two cousins who are NYPD and I know how dangerous their jobs are and and the sort of fear that they have. But I think, you know, if we think thoughtfully about, you know, a meaningful, intentional changes to our gun policies, everyone would be able to exist. You know, police citizens would be able to live with a substantially lower amount of fear and that sort of all-consuming concern that the ubiquity of guns is going to cause violence. But it's just not even a rational response. When you think about it, someone's running away from you. Oh, totally. And, and you're using a gun to stop them from running? Right. No, that, I mean, that's, that's just a function of power and corruption and feeling as though they sort of have to get the last word. And that's obviously incredibly, incredibly wrong. Yeah. 
there was just a case in Chicago. Oh, right. Antoine Rose, right. Antoine Rose. That's the most recent case. Yeah. And he was just 17, I think. Yeah. And, you know, that really is terrifying to <laughs> any mother of a son, you know, especially mothers of black sons. Yeah. You know, we bo- both of us have sons who look like Antoine Rose. And I am terrified that, you know, one day he'll upset the wrong person. And that's why we have that conversation all the time about being deferential and polite and always showing your hands and not moving quickly. And we shouldn't have to have those conversations with our sons. Yeah. I mean, that's why this topic keeps me awake at night. Um, So I really hope people listen to you today and learn as well as, you know, if they can get a copy, get their hands on a copy of your book, Terrorizing the Masses. And also another book that I recommend is Columbine by David Cullen. That's a really good one as well. So Ruth, thank you so much for joining me today. I love having this conversation with you and I could talk to you for hours. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this episode of The Electorate helpful, please leave us a review on iTunes. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribing to The Electorate is easy and it's free. And it's actually immensely helpful. Just hit the subscribe button on your preferred podcast listening platform. And also follow The Electorate on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And that's at Electorette. And until next time, keep up the good fight. <laughs>